welcome to Weekly Infusion with Dr. Drew Pinsky and Dr. Bruce Heishober. Weekly Infusion addresses medically related topics. It's in the know, entertaining and everything you want to know about health and medicine. Now may I present to you the very wonderful Dr. Drew and Dr. Bruce. This is a conversation today that I'm really excited about. I've been trying to get together for a while. First off, I've got Dr. Lisa Palmer Olson, founder and co-director of the San Diego Center for Emotionally Focused Therapy. She's a certified EFT trainer, director of the Alliant Couple and Family Clinic, and a faculty member at the Alliant International University. And... Uh, Emotionally focused therapy, Lisa, is the topic you and I have been going back and forth about for literally years. Yes. And we promised to bring it to the media. And today you have brought me a legend in the field. We have Dr. Sue Johnson. She's the primary developer of emotionally focused couple therapy, one of the leading couples therapists in the world, a researcher, theoretician. She is a clinical psychologist and professor at Alliant International University in San Diego and University of Ottawa in Canada. She's the author of Hold Me Tight. Again, we will be I'll be linking through Gary to Hold Me Tight on the website, so please check this book out and as well as several several other books on EFT, emotionally focused therapy. She has a website ICEEFT.com, ICEEFT, ICEEFT.com, and holdmetight.com. Sue, thank you so much for joining us. You're most welcome. So, ladies, where should we start this conversation? Let's, let's, um, I'm a huge fan of this. Uh, let's, one of you want to describe what emotionally focused therapy is? Oh, where should we start? <laughs> I, I know. That's, that's the sort of uh, gestalt, overwhelming feeling yeah. I have. Um, Rorschach. Emotion focused therapy really started because the field of couple therapy was kind of allergic to emotion. You know, everyone saw emotion as the enemy, and I was a graduate student, and all I was hearing about was how you had to stop being people being so emotional, and you had to stop them fighting, you had to give them insight, and you had to teach them skills so that they were nice to each other. And um, I was a pretty experienced therapist, and I tried all these things with my couples, and it didn't work worth a damn. <laughs> so I started just doing what I'd kind of been taught to do with individuals, which is really listening to people's emotions and taking them seriously and helping them sort them out and order them and not be so scared of them. And when I was able to do that, I found that they sent new emotional signals to their partner, signals that tended to bring their partner close rather than push their partner away. And I started writing it down. And it seems kind of strange now looking all those years ago. <laughs> but basically what happened was suddenly I had this thing called a manual and I had to have a thesis, so I sort of said, which all my advisors and faculty thought I was completely insane. I said, I gotta, I gotta test this out and see if it works. And suddenly I was totally committed for my whole lifetime to helping couples have these new kinds of conversations. Do you find, or any thought that in Britain they, they tend to train their couples therapists a little bit in the same way? <laughs> No. No, Britain, they do not. <laughs> no, I, I learned at, um, in Vancouver in Canada. Um, in fact, I think part of uh, EFT is the result of um, coming from England where it was stiff upper lip. Oh, Although I was a working class kid, I was brought up in a pub. So in a pub, um, stiff upper lip goes out the window after the second scotch. So, you know, 
It's okay. So everyone, uh, English working class people. Then it's just put up, put up your dukes yeah. after mm-hmm. that. Yeah. yeah, it's more. But still, the English have thing like um, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, which is probably the worst advice for marriage that is you could ever pick, right? Yeah. So the English have that thing. And I, I find that emotionally focused therapy is very important in individual therapy as well, and yet woefully underrepresented in the therapeutic interventions. Yeah, I think that's true. Although my, some of my colleagues have been working, they're a bit different from me. They don't have the same kind of interpersonal focus, but you know there is EFT emotion focused for individuals. And um, basically, if you really want to get down to it, the bottom line is emotion is the most powerful response we have. You know, people go to the movies to be moved. Um, emotion. Everyone knows what you mean when you say, "I was so moved, I just had to do something." Your know, emotion is so powerful, and what we're this whole field, whether you look at individual therapy or couple therapy or family therapy, is saying is how you deal with your emotions, how you send signals to other people, has so much to do with what happens in your life and what happens in your relationships. We go directly for that. We don't try to go into it from the side, you know, by giving insight. We go directly for the emotion and help you work with your emotion and send different signals to people. Lisa, how did you get to EFT? I started first year out on learning from Sue Johnson in my doctoral program at Alliance. What do you think attracted you to that, that kind of therapy? Exactly what she was speaking about. We had been trained in all of these cognitive models. We weren't getting anywhere with our couples, we were teaching them how to communicate better and use I statements and manage their anger, and nothing was changing in their relationship. Right. So sat in on an externship and started working in this way and helping people get down to what's really happening at a primary level. What happens to you as a therapist when you dig into those the pit of the two the relationship with another you know two people or have their intersubjective experience you know right. the, the thing important thing for people i want to break this all down for people because people don't even think very often about what a relationship is even though that's our self is built on that the whole society is built yeah. on that and so this right. thing of two people sitting near one each other or com- whatever they do with each other mm-hmm. this relationship thing creates a third thing which is right. the relationship and no one ever thinks about how that changes each of us. And, and then you try to climb into that as a therapist. Mm-hmm. What happens to you? Well, I think Im- immediately you're just – your first instincts I think as a new therapist is to kind of run away from it and pat it down, right? And I think as you become more seasoned – Hang on a second. That's, that's your re- experience. Is that your experience too when you got in there at the beginning? Um, so you get anxious. You get the, nervous. In the beginning when you've yeah. never well, sat. Well, not everybody. Let's couple, see. Is that what everybody right? gets? Um, no, it wasn't for me. I think it's because I, I was brought up in a pub. <laughs> she wants to beat him up. Yeah. Well, you know, I watch. I mean, I was a kid. It was probably really bad upbringing in some ways. But you know, I was a kid, and and it was I was expected to help. So I was standing behind the bar, drying glasses, and so I got really used to. You know, I didn't have TV. I wasn't watching all these things on TV. I was watching people punch each other out and flirt like crazy and <laughs> get mad at my dad, and and so I think I have this kind of. Cap- capacity to just roll with emotion i'm not intimidated by it and i think that helped a lot in the beginning see i'm like you yeah. i get anxious yeah that's i when yeah. i get in the middle of the first thing i feel is like oh god am i going to find a way out am i going to hurt them am i going to everything going to be okay oh. right which is well, our pathology I, right and i think i learned that leaning into that is is actually where yeah. we can make the change and and when you have success doing that you realize how well I let, break that down what do you okay. mean by leaning into it well that those are the moments we need to work with 
right? That we can't let our own intimidation or anxiety take over our own stuff. And that you can lean in in a way that can be really impactful to relationships. Okay, so if if I were to put that in my own experience, I would say, because I think you're right, Uh I would say, don't let my own stuff interfere here. If that's that's my anxiety, that's not their anxiety, that's Uh mine. But my intense, you know, what makes me anxious is I care about what's happening here and use that as a way of going in further yep. and listening more deeply and listen uh, being more motivated to help. Right. Is that I, right? Abs- lean in? Absolutely. I yeah. mean, embracing the signals that your own body's telling you, using those, okay. running through your own uh, okay. body. Well, this is where the rubber hits the road for me. So we hear what she said. She said, so embrace the Embracing. signals your body is giving you. And yep. I don't think people are, I know doctors aren't trained to do that. T- no. Talk about that. Well, I think the issue is, um, you know, we're kind of entitled that response because we've all, for, for centuries, we've distrusted emotion. You know, Descartes said years ago, um, I think, therefore I am. We've said, well, what matters about human beings if you've got this big prefrontal cortex sitting here and we can think, we can reason, right? So the implication is emotion is just kind of our animal nature. You know, it's sort of to be distrusted. Plato, and, was the, it was the horses pulling a carriage and me, the self, is supposed to be the charioteer controlling that's the right. horses. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, yeah. of course, on the one hand, we don't like emotion then because it can come and take us over. That's what it's supposed to do. The bottom line is your prefrontal cortex is way too slow to change your, to, to save your life. You know, if, a, if a tiger leaps at you, it's your emotions that are going to say, get the hell out of here. That's right. If you sit and think about it, I think that's a tiger. <laughs> uh, you're dead already, right? Yeah. So um, we haven't trusted emotions, and I think it's just translated into therapy. We, we see them as something to be contained. But if you see emotion – as your most basic um, sort of built-in compass for what you need and what you want and what's going on in your environment. And if you learn how to tune into it and trust it, then it's amazingly powerful. So so it, then it translates into, well, then of course you use it in therapy because you help people tune into that. You know, there's nothing more powerful, for example, in couples therapy than the longing that people have to be close and loved. And if you can tweak that longing, people will blow your mind. People will take risks that they will tell you, I would n- I'll never do that. People will do things that they haven't got the skill to do. They'll, they'll reach, they'll take risks, they'll learn things about themselves and other people because that longing's there. So I think it's been our attitude to emotion, you know, and it it carries forward into our mental health and into our the way we train people. We just we're scared of it, basically. Bottom line is we're scared of it. And we certainly don't put resources towards um, healing and developing our emotional systems because they are they're slow to rewire and slow to change, right? For the most part. And so it takes time and then of course we want everything now, 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 and there's no money for it and blah blah. What's the most common, if this is something you can even answer, the most common issue that you're dealing with in EFT in a couple setting? The most common issue is that – oh, wow, that's a biggie. Okay. Yeah, it is. Give, give me a top, give it a top three. The most even. common issue is that both people are scaring the hell out of each other. They're creating what um, – attachment theory is called primal panic okay in each other they're scaring the hell out of each other and the way they're dealing with that fear is perpetuating the fear so for example 
um, I try to talk to you, and as I try to talk to you, you turn your back on me for a thousand different reasons, okay? You just turn your back on me. My mammalian brain, which says, you know, I'm all alone here, this is dangerous, okay? Um, You turn your back on me, it freaks me out, it scares me. My brain goes into a panic and I start to scream at you. You turn around to me and you say, you are freaked out too because now the person you love is screaming at you, but you don't know how to talk about that. So you turn around, you sit in your head and you say, I'm not going to talk to you when you're starting to scream at me. You're impossible. And you've just shut the door on me again. So I scream at you some more. The more, the, the more I scream at you, the more you shut down and warm me off. And couples are stuck in this. You can call it any name you like. You can call it a demand withdrawal. I call it the protest polka because what I've understood all the years is that underneath this dreadful dance that people are caught in is, in fact, a desperate longing to connect And half the time, people are angry or shutting down because they're hurting and they're scared and they don't know what to do with these emotions, not because they don't care or because we're not naturally monogamous. That one drives me crazy, okay? So (laughs) uh, if we're not naturally monogamous, we're all completely psychotic because we're all trying really hard to be naturally monogamous. In in every culture on earth, by the way. Oh, it's just culture, just another way of doing things. (laughs) Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. (laughs) So, you know, we're either naturally monogamous. But the point is we haven't known how to do it. So from my point of view, the problem in couples is distance. We focus on conflict. We say... The problem in couples is that we fight. No, because you see couples that don't fight at all and they're really in trouble. <laughs> yeah. The problem in couples is the distance. They, we don't know how to create this secure bond that everybody's looking for. You know, we haven't had a picture of what it looks like. We haven't understood it until I'd say the last 15 years. But we haven't understood it. So what we do is we help couples understand that they're dancing a dance called attachment and they're scaring each other and that they both need this closeness and connection. And it's like everything else. When you give people some safety and you help them understand what's going on, they respond, you know. You know, the – the attachment issue and secure attachment, I think, is a core of everything. I, in my own therapy, I feel like, in retrospect, I was—I had a fantasy just yesterday. I think I was mm-hmm. thinking, "What would I? If I talk to my therapist and say, you know, thank you, but here's what I really perceived all, all those years I was doing. What do you think?" And I'm hoping she'd agree with me. Was I was just forming a secure attachment? Yeah. Period. And and that that then translated to my kids and my wife. Right. And those, those relationships became much more secure as a result of that. So there's right. there's also a place for just working on one and letting that person then translate it back into the into the couple's relationship. Mm-hmm. The the issue of safety and the tapes I've watched of you guys working, safety always comes up. I don't feel safe. Right. Uh, that seems like one of the most common complaints, which is really what you were just talking about. Yeah. Do you yeah. call that out and you, you say you've made this an unsafe environment? Is that typically what you do or is it just implicit in what no, the conversation? No, you don't say you've made it. That, that would blame. People don't intend. You know, when you're dancing a dance you don't understand, you just put your feet everywhere and right. crawling on your partner's foot. You know, <laughs> That's just what you do. So you, we don't say to people, look at what you're doing. Don't you see you're yelling at, her, uh, yelling at him when you want him to be tender with you? Yes. Isn't that stupid? Yes, yes. That's no good. Right? You just say to somebody, and, and, yet, and yet the public, at least in this kind of the perception is that's what therapists do. 
That's the no. perception. That I know they do why. What? That they do exactly what Sue said. They go, oh. "Don't you see?" Our, well, it's what Phil does. It's a, Don't uh, you see? Right. A, that's like that's that's shaming right. them down. That's, that's bad right. therapy. That's, that's deeply wounding right. them further. Right? Yeah, that's bad therapy. I would say we do bring forward the safety, the unsafe, emotional unsafety into the room and make that explicit and help people to say it feels scary to show this part of you. Yeah. Right. And we help them say that, but it's not in a blaming way. Right, right, right. Right. And we understand how it became unsafe between the two people through this lens of attachment and security. How does it take to work somebody right. through? Let's say with some moderately, is it just no way to predict the given couple, how they well, work through a process? It's tricky because you're not sure when people are going to get stuck. But yeah. in general, I mean, we work with people anything from eight to about 20 sessions. It's pretty good. It's pretty good, especially when you think that people have been practicing these ways of getting stuck for years. <laughs> well, <laughs> you speak, know? Speaking of getting stuck, is, is it – you talked about the primal – primal pain of, uh, of wanting a secure attachment, being stuck in a dance, a repetitive dance that really is a reenactment of their original insecure attachments, right? Are these traumatic reenactments? It's not always hmm. a repetition of their original. Don't forget the power of the present relationship. You can have pretty good secure attachment and then you can say fall in love with somebody who's a, pl- a cop who's mm-hmm. in um you can have a pretty good relationship and you fall in love with a cop and he's in a real bad shootout and his buddy dies. I'm thinking of a case that we dealt with, right? His buddy dies. And he says, uh, my buddy died because I, I was a bad cop. I missed the shot, okay? And he goes into his own thing and he completely shuts down, shuts his wife out. Well, before you know where you are, she's starting to have all kinds of anxiety problems and their relationship starts to go downhill. Yes. So whether they've had a secure relationship in the past will help because they kind of know what it looks like. They know how to get back there a bit easier. Yeah. But the present relationship is also very powerful. And sometimes life picks us up and twirls us around and we get stuck in an emotional place. <coughs> Right where we make it almost impossible for our partner to feel safe reaching for us and calling for us. To, to me, it feels like that kind of case is something you'd wish for because so much of what I hear about it is all you know the severely uh, disorganized attachments in childhood. Which are the worst. Mm-hmm. I mean, would you agree? Well, you work with trauma. I right? work you with trauma. trauma. And yeah. those are people who – I think the thing that hits me about trauma is not only have those people not got an image or a model for feeling safe with someone else and being able to reach for someone else and get somebody to help them make sense of their own emotions, they've experienced that letting someone close is actually incredibly dangerous. Right. So they're in a bind. They're, they're in a bind every minute of their life. I desperately need somebody to come close because my inner world feels lonely and, and dark. I desperately need comfort. And then when I invite someone in, suddenly they come close and my brain says, oh, my God, this is terribly dangerous. You mustn't do this. So they're in this horrible, horrible paradox all the time. Imagine trying to live your life like that. It's, so you work with trauma and that's Millions what, do. Millions, millions like do. Millions do. And and I think the trouble is people focus on it just from my point of view, okay? Um, I mean, I do individual therapy too, but I'm basically a couples therapist. Mostly those folks end up going for individual therapy. Our experience is if you bring their partner into the room, if you bring their main attachment figure into the room, if it's a kid, you bring their dad in or their mom, you know. But if you bring their partner into the room, 
you can work with them much easier in a sense because you help them share their pain with that attachment figure and you help that attachment figure comfort them. You've done something amazing. You've given them a door out of that dark, lonely place. You know, that's that's an amazingly powerful thing to do. And, and in terms of longing for love, that's that's really the person they're longing to be attached to, not a therapist. That's right. But the right. very person you're sitting in front of them with. That's right. right. So in Hold Me Tight, for example, I have a, I have an example. I protect people in when I write books. But in this case, you know, it was a real case and they gave me permission. Um, there's a Vietnam vet. And he is consumed with shame for what he did as a 21-year-old guy consumed every moment and you know he's had therapy for years but it's when he can turn and tell his partner what he did in Vietnam and look up in her face and see as and of course therapist has to help him do that look up in her face and see that as he tells her this instead of the the disgust and the contempt that he expects to see he sees her weep he sees her face go soft. He sees her face moved with compassion. And then she says to him, you're my man. You're a good man. I've loved you forever. I want you to come back home now. Can you please come back from Vietnam and be with me? Because I want you. I love you. Yes, you did these things. It's okay. For my take on it, that's like um, – uh, if a good therapist goes in and says, you know, it's okay, you know, this is why why you did those things, it's like a little 20-watt light bulb. Yeah. What she just did was put on a stadium floodlight into yeah. that pit of shame. Yeah. I take – if she could do that five or six times, his whole sense of self starts to change. He starts to think, you know what? I was just 21. <laughs> you know what? I'm not a monster. But he doesn't you know, see it because of some cognitive shift. People think, oh, she taught him. No, he. they shared an experience. experience. They connected right. around his experience of shame. Yeah. She was there with him, co-creating mm -hmm. well, those if you, moments. And if you're going to get a real cognitive shift, you've gotta, you're going to have the emotional oomph first. Because right. your emotion says, emotion says, this matters, listen up. So, you know. I believe what you just described is what happens. Now, my peers go, oh, the 12-step is so important for drug addicts because it gives them psychosocial support. Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. That's not the magic of it. The magic of it, what you describe is what addicts do with their sponsors in their fourth and fifth step. That's yeah. exactly right. what they right. do. And you know what the, what the empathic recovering person sitting there listening to the recovering, more early recovering mm -hmm. person, spill their guts of shameful, awful things that they did in their disease, their usual response is, me too. Right. I did that. Right. right. And that makes, you know, bottom line, that makes all the difference in the world. The one thing that human beings can't tolerate is isolation. They can't, you know, people can deal with all kinds of pain and confusion. What they cannot deal with is being alone, which is why we use isolation as a punishment and as a torture. You know, it's but we don't pick up that many of us in our everyday lives are fighting isolation. Isolation is deadly for mammals. Mammals, you know, they just sort of shrivel up and die or go nuts in isolation. That's what Harlow's monkeys did. Yeah. Harlow's monkeys were perfectly healthy, put them in the cage, and he couldn't figure out why all these healthy young monkeys suddenly started biting themselves, rocking, dying, getting diseases. I mean, you know, mammals are built 
for social life in small groups and for intimate connection with one or two other beings. You put a mammal all by itself, it dies. I don't even think people know what intimacy is anymore. I, I, when, they, when you say intimacy, they immediately think physical intimacy. They don't even know what the emotional experience is. They think sex. They think sex. Right. But, but, and, they, and they have no other way of thinking about it. They can't understand. Again, the whole idea of something being co-created is already foreign. So let's talk. I'm going to go back to the uh, bodily-based experiences. Really, ultimately, what you guys are describing is two bodies coming together. And I'm not talking about physical. I'm talking no. about communicating. Our bodies communicate in ways we don't even You're talking idea. about tuning in. Tuning resonance. in. Attunement. Resonance. All these things. And that's really what EFT is founded on, right? Would you yeah. agree? Yeah. yeah. It's the ability to – when we talk about a relationship, relationship is not just me looking in your eyes or me thinking things or talking things. It's our bodies and connect and mirror and do all kinds of things that our right brain picks up on that we have no idea about. That's right. right. But it's right. critical to closeness, right. critical to actually mm-hmm. being close to each other. Um, let me share with you a couple of my experiences where I, I started realizing that I was on to something with my ability to do this because it, it doesn't – you're not trained in it as a physician, believe me. And I, I, I sort of came into this through Peter Fonagy and Alan Shore and reading yeah. about it and going, oh, my God, this stuff is really – my patients all have deficits here. I better kind of start paying attention to this and see what my body is doing when I'm with them. What I, and I started realizing that I started having experiences and thoughts and all kinds of things when I was sitting there that were not mine. They, they just were not things I normally would experience if I really listened to them. So I know that either the patient is putting them there or we're co-creating them or something. Right. So I was able to start to use and trust my right brain. And I had a very vivid experience. I'm just curious about your interpretation of what, what I did, what I should have done, and what, what happened. Um, I had a patient, uh, severe trauma survivor, that would come in every day early in my work with him. And uh, he was uh, – I may have told you this story. I'm going to tell Sue. Um and uh, telling horrible. I mean, just we're just giving me his history and just revivifying just awful trauma. I was just trying to like you know keep it down. He's, he's a recovering guy, and I don't want to amplify or revivify trauma. I just want to just you know understand and reflect that I appreciate where his, what his life course has been. And about second or third time he started coming in, uh, I would hear the opening music of the TV show Mad Men in my head. Uh, you know, and I would feel like, and I would feel like I was that, you know, the opening cartoon with the guys falling through the, the yeah. I felt like that guy. I felt like, oh, that's me falling. Just uh, hearing, because he'd, he'd suck me into this place where I felt out of control and unpleasant. And it was like, oh, awful. But I, but I would try to stay with it because I figured this is the feelings he's in. You know, this is where he's at. And that, those, I don't feel like that normally. And how straight the music would like vividly turn on <laughs> the drum beat every time we'd walk in. Bum, 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 here it comes. And uh, so I'm, uh, and so about the fourth or fifth time, uh, he, he comes in. I oh, there's them. There's the music again. <laughs> here we go. We get ready to fall, and and I'm listening. I'm listening, and I'm I'm falling. And all of a sudden, I go from being that the the guy falling feeling to being a little baby falling. And I went. <gasps> it, it it took my breath away. The experience was so painful, I couldn't tolerate it. And and I stopped him, and I said, uh, I, I got to stop you. I'm, I'm having an experience here that I I. I I know it has to be coming from you because I've never experienced anything quite like this. And I described it to him, and he became furious. Mm-hmm. You're so full of psychobabble, and how dare you think things like this? And stormed out and left. Right. Now, mind you, he came back because he was in a structured environment. He came back the next day and went, how did you know? He goes, all yeah. day, all I hear all day is the crying baby in my head, the baby, the baby, the baby. And I just couldn't tolerate you talking about it, but like I couldn't tolerate feeling it even. Was that an okay way to deal with that? or did you Oh, check? I think that was an amazing yeah. way to deal with it because what you did 
was you tuned into him and picked up the cues. You know, we send cues to people. We don't even know. Like, you can read the expressions on somebody's face in about 100 milliseconds. And in 300 milliseconds, your mirror neurons in your brain have mimicked that feeling in your body. So we're designed for connection, right? But you did it brilliantly. I mean, lots of things can interfere with that. You can be, if you're in your head saying, what shall I tell this guy to do? You're not going to tune into that. No, no, yeah. But you did it brilliantly, and what you did was – think of all the things you did there. Basically, you said to him, hey, you're not alone. I can hear your experience. I can read your experience. You said, hey, you're not weird and strange. Somebody else can relate to this experience. You said, oh, yeah, I see how painful that is. That mm. must hurt. So you have the right to be hurt. You're not crazy. You're not – I mean, think of all – I could go on forever. Think of all the things you did in that moment by – and basically you said, I'm with you. I can feel it well, and it hurts. So then you allow him to tell you, yeah, this really hurts. And then you and him can feel safe enough to explore that hurt. I mean, that's brilliant therapy. I, I've had that happen sometimes with addicts that are lying to me and I don't know it. But I, because I've learned to trust that right brain thing, I'll just say, hey, you're full of shit. And uh, they're like, huh. Like I, you're right. I didn't. I wasn't even aware of it, but you're right. <laughs> and then they feel understood in that moment. Like you feel, you feel safer because you, you, the the bullshitting of the disease makes them feel unsafe. Yeah, they know they could use again if they are swept into that. Well, well I, and that's what I was telling her earlier this morning that you have this amazing ability to do, which is just to sit with and be come alongside of someone's experience. So I think it's a pathology. I think I'm so codependent. No, no, no it, I've, oh. I've used it to be to Drew, good help you. Use that oh. word. That word is such a naughty word. Okay, all right. Well, use. I, I so think it, it was a. It was a weakness. Is that an okay word? No, no. Condition? No, no. <laughs> it was a feature. It was a feature. The ability, of the strength. ability to strength. Cope. Strength. But be, well, I've used it. As, I've, it has become a strength for me. It is a but strength. It is a it strength. Is a but strength. it has it, historically, in my life, it has not necessarily been a strength because I, I would get sucked into other people's stuff. This, this. Ability with boundaries is the key. Yeah. You and have to be able to keep your own emotional balance. You, you, yes. Well, you have to not be overcome by their stuff and, and yeah. be able to distinguish between yours and theirs, which is hard if you're right. codependent and all that kind of stuff. I was. No codependent. No, I was. Yeah, I was. I feel I, lots of therapy. Codependent really is just, for me, codependent is just a code word that we have for the fact that we haven't understood our dependency on other people and we haven't understood that that ability to reach for other people and lean on other people is actually a strength. The strongest people that we can be are, we are stronger when we are intimately connected with one or two other people that we can reach for. There is no argument about that. It is totally clear in the resilience literature, the mental health literature, the attachment literature. I could give you 300 references off the top of my head. Okay, make a very boring program. But, you know, um, there's no argument about that. Securely connected people who say, of course, I'm dependent. I'm a mammal. I'm wired to connect with other people and turn to other people for comfort. They have their emotional balance. They are strong. They, They are more resilient in trauma. And they can turn to other people and tune into other people's experience so they create relationships. You gave that guy the most enormous gift just by just being with him in that moment, even if you hadn't done anything else, even if afterwards you said, gee, that was really hard. Let's go have a coffee now. (laughs) You know, you gave him a gift just to be with him in that. And 
I think that's something we are, from my point of view, I don't think we're training health professionals, physicians, psychologists. We're not training people in that. Not at all. We train people, I'm going to stand outside, I'm going to fix you. I'm going to give you three suggestions and you follow them and then the client doesn't. Well, And, then, you know, and that's, the, that's the, the TV myths perpetuate that yeah, and that's right. the sort of common culture believes that. That's right. And, and it's the exact wrong, particularly for a world so full of trauma and screwed up relationships and, and broken families and, and insecure attachments. Uh, how do you, given that a lot of people have attachments that aren't secure, how do we help people understand that they do or don't or how do they know when they are there? You know what I'm saying? Because I, when I wasn't insecure, I didn't know I was in an insecure attachment. But through therapy, I'm like, ooh, yeah, this, this is different now. Well, I think mm. usually what happens is your relationship starts to fall apart. And that's why I love couple therapy so much. And, you know, Lisa must experience this when with all the young therapists that she teaches at the uh, university, that people come in – If you really think about it, what's the main reason people go for therapy? Sometimes they're depressed. The main reason people go for therapy is because they're having terrible relationships. So people come in and they don't say, I think I'm insecure. (laughs) They (laughs) come in and they say, why is my wife so angry at me? She's going to leave me and I don't know what to do about that. So then you start talking about how safe do they feel being close? Can they talk about their feelings? Can they confide? We live in a very lonely world. All the evidence is that people have less and less people to confide in. I think, I can't remember, I think the survey said that at least one third of the people in the US don't have anyone to confide in. Whoa. Yeah. So we live in a lonely world and we need this connection. And when we can't find it, then we are motivated to look and say, well, wait a minute, do I feel safe around people? Do I know what it feels like to be able to turn and reach for somebody and say, I'm scared right now, I need your arms around me? Could we, have we ever even seen that? If you look at the stuff on, on our, in our media on love, it's really puerile. You know, it's mostly about all, mutual orgasm that takes about 20 seconds. So, no, never mind 20 seconds, three seconds, okay. <laughs> so, sound by orgasm, you know, but like hmm. it's, it's so we don't even somehow we don't even know what we're missing, but something's right. going wrong. We don't know what we're missing. We're, right. Something's going wrong, and we know that inside we feel scared and lonely. And that's a great place to start because then people come for couple therapy, and you start talking to people about what you know. Could you ever imagine instead of you're saying that underneath all this anger you're scared? Could you ever imagine being able to turn to her right here, right now, and say? I do get angry because I'm so scared that I'll never do it right with you. I don't know how to be a good husband. I'm just scared. And people look at you like, are you insane? (laughs) I'm not going to do that, right? But you help them do it and it blows them away when their partner says, oh, I didn't know that. You know, I don't want you to be scared. I want to hear that. Come and be comforted then. In that moment, they feel safe, connected, expansive. Their body goes, ah, their brain puts out little cuddle hormone called oxytocin. Okay, then they get, oh, this is what secure attachment feels like. Oh, my God. And I think this is why we don't get many dropouts in EFT because um, we say to people, yeah, you got to talk about your heart, your your difficult feelings. And they go, oh, really? And we say, yes, you have. But then they get little shots of this where they start to 
feel security. But your question of how do you know what it feels like and how do you know what it looks like (coughs) is a very good one because people, they just vaguely know that they feel what John Bowlby, the father of all this attachment stuff, called he called it emotional starvation. They know they're starving for something. They don't even know what it is. You know, and the media says, well, if you were better at sex, you know, you'd right. feel fulfilled. And right. then they have three orgasms and they still don't feel fulfilled. They still don't feel close, right? So what's wrong with me? It must be something wrong with me. They're starving and they don't even really know what it is they're starving for. So my take on it is that mental health has to get it together here and start showing people what it is they really need because we've lost touch with it in our society. I think we really have. I completely agree. And and then the therapist function and bringing that all out is being like an antenna. You're in yes. the middle of this yes. absorbing. Your body is helping them regulate your face, your voice, the prosodic. You know, Sue has a very lovely way even on mm-hmm. you know, podcasting of yeah. bringing you in with her voice. And that's what allows the emotions to be expressed because you're co-creating in that environment. And and by the way, it's fabulous for the therapist. I mean, I go all over the world and teach all these people to do EFT, and it's so rewarding because they send me emails saying, "I can't believe you know my I've started to work with my couples, and I didn't believe that people could do this stuff, but they can." And it's it's don't you think, Lisa? What do you think? What's well, it like for you to be an EFT therapist? Oh, well, I, I want to speak to one thing you were just mentioning about what it's like for the therapist going through the training. I mean, we, we get tons of emails after about they start working on their own relationship. Yes. Course, right. Course, and yeah. they that they have this longing to be seen. And then can they do that with their couples yeah. if they don't feel seen yeah. by their partner? So it feels like 90% of the time those externships turn into working with the therapist's own ability to co-regulate. Right, I mean, it's yeah. the one thing that blocks people from doing this model well, right? Because they don't have—they're not healthy enough themselves. Right. Interesting. Well, you know, we do have a debate in our society about what a healthy relationship is. Yeah. And it seems to me that a few years ago we got stuck on this idea that healthy relationship is kind of like two totally self-sufficient, completely adoring themselves to death. They're totally worth it, whatever it is, whether it's a car or the new detergent. You know, two totally together human beings who for some mysterious reason suddenly turn and decide to have sex with each other and then say, hey, it's better with you than without you, baby, but I could leave any time. <laughs> this is the image of a good relationship. You've got to be joking. You know, and so I think we haven't really been very good at understanding love and we certainly haven't been good at saying to people, look, this is what a good relationship looks like and this is worth fighting for this is you know this is a platform from which you can grow as a human being live your life this is what a good relationship and we haven't even been able to do that hopefully we're starting now i really think i really think uh, there's a revolution happening and we're we're understanding so much more now about emotion and love and and then what goes wrong when we don't have those things? Well, and when we you do know. have them, we build the capacity for regulation. We're healthier. All these That's things we feel better. Our right. esteem is better. Everything right. up, 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 up when we're in a secure attachment. That's right. Now, I'm going to go to break in just a second. We're going to take a bunch of calls here for you guys. A reminder to go to drdrew.com and click through on the Amazon banner to help us out here and keep this thing alive. Uh, before we go to break, though, you use a word I'm going to ask you to – I'm not sure if defines the right word, but you use the word love. What do you mean? We've been talking about secure attachment. 
people go write books about what that means. You That's interesting because um, Google said that the biggest question last year on Google was what is love. Mm. So um, poets and philosophers all through the ages haven't known. So I'm going to leap into space here. <laughs> so Sue Johnson is going to give us <laughs> yeah. the definition. Finally. I am. Finally. I am. Okay. And, and to hell with anyone who says I can't. I'm going to give it to um, love is the ultimate survival mechanism. Love is um, a response wired into your mammalian brain when, because mammals are born small and helpless. And literally, if mammals call and no one comes, they die. And your brain is wired for that, with that knowledge, okay? And love is basically an attachment bond. And adult love is another version of the love between infant and mother. Now, we have a hard time with that because we get all hung up on sex, okay? But adult, uh, that's what an adult bond is. And it has a lot of the same things, the need for proximity, the incredible distress when you cannot emotionally connect with somebody, Right. The the fact that when you feel loved, you have this safe haven, secure base to go out into the world. You're stronger. You get your emotional balance. It's all the same stuff. And you can even play with fusion and sex, which is sort of that fantasy of sure being together. But you, wait, let's. Well, hey, you want me to talk about love and sex? This is too much, Drew. Okay, okay. okay just let's stay with love. Okay. We'll bring you back for that one. Okay. All right. We'll take a quick break, <laughs> and then we'll be back with calls after this. Hi, Dwight. Of course, you've heard me rave about these guys. It's a product that I actually wanted to develop myself. I, I conceived of this. I knew it was needed. It was already in Australia, and now it is here. It works. The feedback is unanimous. Even though it's great to use, though, when you're sick or dehydrated, you can use it every day, especially now that the weather is changing. It's hot. So whether you're exercising or maybe you've got seasonal allergies or you drank too much or you got vomiting or diarrhea, whatever it might be, you can reduce fatigue and keep feeling healthy as well. Once you've started feeling dehydrated, sometimes a little too late. So you want to stay hydrated. And rapid rehydration, if you do get dehydrated, requires a proper balance of sodium, glucose, and water. And nothing provides it like hydrolyte. I'm telling you, it's the same as an IV fluid via your mouth, via your enteral system. It's based on established, proven science. Quite simply, the best rehydration product out there. It comes in great flavors. They have those fizzy tablets. Also, they have a powder and a premix drink. Compared to other sports drinks, Hydrolyte delivers up to four times the electrolytes with 75% less sugar. Hydrolyte solutions are appropriate for all ages, and each bottle or package includes easy-to-follow directions. All right, you can find Hydrolyte at Rite Aid or online at Amazon or click through at drdrew.com. And for a limited time, our listeners save 30% on Hydrolyte if you use the code D-R-D-R-E-W, Dr. Drew, H-Y at checkout. That is D-R-D-R-E-W-H-Y. 30% off. Great deal. Do it. Well, one of the great parts about working in recovery is seeing former patients successfully move on. And I've had patients that have come up to me years later and uh, shake my hand and say, you know, sometimes people are kicked out of treatment. And uh, many of these folks move on to become mental health professionals themselves. And, of course, the field of psychology is vast. The need for competent practitioners is huge. If you're considering this rewarding career, I urge you to consider the California School of Professional Psychology at Alliant University. Now, I've known them for a long time at Alliant University. I've spoken at their past events. It was founded in 1969. It's boasts an alumni network of nearly 50,000 people worldwide. And Alliant has fostered many of today's mental health pioneers, authors, and advocates. CSPP at Alliant University hosts both on-ground and online programs in business psychology, marriage and family therapy, clinical counseling. They also offer APA-accredited doctoral programs in clinical psychology. 
that can allow for specialization in child psychology, clinical forensic psychology, and integrated psychology. And the faculty is crazy. It's made up of, of leaders and historical figures like Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, Viktor Frankl, some of the true fathers of modern psychology. For more information, and I've worked alongside of these students as well, by the way, in the clinical setting, as well as having lectured at the institution. So for more on the California School of Professional Psychology, CSPP, at Alliant, click the Alliant banner on our website or visit Alliant, A-L-L-I-A-N-T dot E-D-U, Alliant dot E-D-U. Okay, welcome back to Talk True Podcast. I'm here with Sue Johnson. She's the developer of EFT Couples Therapies. She's researcher and clinical psychologist, professor at Alliant International University in San Diego and University of Ottawa, Canada. Her book is Hold Me Tight. Please do get that book on uh, com. It is, well, you can absolutely figure out. You'll be able to really sit and think about these things we're talking about here. In Hold Me Tight, Sue, do you give uh, sort of exercises and ways to yeah, apply yeah. these things? Yeah. So, and the uh, website, ICE, ICEFT.com and HoldMeTight.com. Also, Dr. Lisa Palmer Olson, founder and co-director of the San Diego Center for Emotionally Focused Therapy and director of the Alliant Couple and Family Clinic, also a faculty member at Alliant International University. We're going to go straight on out to calls. Let us talk to uh, Chris. Chris, and calling from Las Vegas. Chris, what's up? Hey, how you doing, doctor? Good. Thanks for waiting. I'm sorry to keep you on hold so long. Go ahead. Oh, no worries. Um, I just had a question. I left my wife. We had four kids together, and I left her back in the beginning of October, and she has maybe seen the kids about four or five times since then, and I was just wondering if you guys had any input on if that's going to have an effect on my kids, I guess, uh, mental being as they as they grow more. Well, Chris, let me just, of course, and I'll let, I'll let my... Uh, faculty members here this talk to you about that but women that leave their children and and just leave them are almost always drug addicts and alcoholics is that what your wife is um i have to assume because i really don't know for sure but or, or I, severely mentally ill too. severely mentally ill but because that just doesn't happen very often so let's let's try to focus on your question sue i'll have you take a swipe at it first the effects of mom being gone um yes that will impact your kids chris um I mean, it's it's a huge loss, okay? But I guess my instinct is to, because it's a very courageous thing that you, you call in with this, my instinct is to go for the most hopeful part, which is all the research I know says that if your kids have at least one stable, secure attachment, that they will be able to deal with that loss and that they will be able to grow and develop as whole human beings. So... I think, in a sense, it puts a lot of weight on you. Um, it puts a lot of weight on you that your kids, with this loss of their mom, for whatever reason it was, really need the emotional connection with you. So what I mean by that is, um, uh, you know, uh, it's a lot of responsibility for you. But if I was in that situation, for example, I would say to myself, you got to spend, be willing to spend lots of time holding your kids paying attention to your kids, singing your kids to sleep. You've got to be ever so available to your kids. Your kids have got to know that if they call, that daddy will come in the middle of the night or whenever. You know, in a way, you have to give them... Ideally, there's two people to give them this safety, this sense of safe haven that kids need so much. But in this case, it's down to you. Um, so right here, what hits me is how important you are in this drama 
But yeah, your kids, they also need to grieve and have a way of understanding what happened that does not mean that there's anything wrong with them. You know, the worst thing here, I think, is kids say to themselves, well, my parent, whoever it is, mummy left because I was a bad kid. And that is the beginning of totally feeling bad about yourself. Okay, And then I start to hide from other people and I get angry and um, I drive other people away. So I think it's, you know, you helping them come up with an understanding. And that may be hard because maybe you don't understand why she left. Yeah. You know, so that's a hard one. So um, I think just coming up with a clear story for them about how come mommy left them and that it wasn't anything about that they were bad and that you are going to be there for them. You are their daddy. They can count on you. Um, I think that that's the best scenario. But, yeah, it is going to impact them. It is going to impact them. All right, thank you. All right, Chris, good luck with that. Four kids at 24, man, hats off to you. Join it by yourself. You better believe. It's a big deal. Uh, Pay attention. Use whatever. Listen, I I have a great wife and a stable marriage, and we still use lots of mental health services just because they they pay off. They pay dividends. So if you need help, don't be afraid to watch out for it, okay? All right. Yes, appreciate it, guys. All right, buddy, take care. This now is uh, Chris. Chris, what's up? Hi. Are you talking to me? Yes, what's going on there? Oh, hi, Dr. Drew. I'm a big fan. I actually have been listening to this show. It's fascinating. And my question was not about relationships and mental health. I was actually calling you a question, calling with a question for you about schizophrenia. Go ahead. Um, I wondered if it was true. Somebody told me that you could become schizophrenic from being a drug addict, from taking, being addicted to street drugs. Yeah, it's not that simple. Uh, I mean, schizophrenia is a specific disorder with very specific diagnostic criteria. Uh, and it is thought of as a genetic biological disorder that comes on in the sort of young adult years. Schizophreniform disorders, things like schizophrenia, can definitely be created from heavy drug, certain drug use in certain situations. Some people believe you may be precipitating schizophrenia in somebody who's sort of predisposed, who may or may not have had it in their lifetime, but somehow the drug's awaken it or activate it. And there are certainly some people that just develop psychotic disorders from the drugs themselves. And sometimes they can look schizophrenic, and when they get off the drugs, it goes away. Mm-hmm. That's really inter- that's really interesting, because I also thought it was wholly genetic. Well, again, you're, the disease it basically is, but things that look like that disease or be, can be either triggered by, you know, people who have the genetic predilection triggered by a, a drugs or something that really kind of looks like schizophrenia created by the drugs. You see the distinction? Yes, I do. That's really interesting. And, and some, and within the uh, within the schizophreniform disorders, some will remit when people stop drugs, and some will continue. Interesting. Yeah, well, you, you, you got. Wait, wait, do you want to tell us your tell us your specific situation? I feel like there's a story here. No, just my grandmother um, was schizophrenic and ended up committing suicide. Oof! How old was she and, when she uh, when it came on? She was in menopause. That's about not, 52. That's and not, I thought it came on early, like in your that's, 20s. That is not schizophrenia. That is, not, that is something else. That is, there, are very, there are a lot of neurological disorders that can come on in later in life, in the mid, even in the, in the, the uh, midlife years, that can look like schizophrenia. And kind of schizophrenic, you know, they, get, they get a paranoid psychosis, but that's not schizophrenia. And at that time, that was um, like in the late 60s, early 70s. Oh, no, 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 no. Mis- 
He yeah. could have been misdiagnosed. Uh, categorically. Categorically. He could have been. I mean, there are literally a hundred things it could have been. And it might oh, not have anything to do with drugs. It could have been uh, seriously medical issues can look like that, too. Interesting. Okay. Did she ever, did she ever have, let me tell you something. Did she ever have a symptom where she was calling people imposters? Like, you're not my real daughter. You're somebody who's sent here to looks like my daughter, trying to pretend that you're my daughter. Yeah, she's very paranoid. No, but was there ever that specific symptom where she was calling people imposters? I'm not sure. Because that imposter syndrome is actually diagnostic for an organic psychosis, meaning she had some kind of an infection or mm-hmm. something in her brain, makes it absolutely diagnostic of that. Okay? Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, there you go. Thanks, Dr. Right, Drew. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, it's uh, it, once you once you open the mental health door, it gets complex. Yes, <laughs> it does. And yes. uh, but most of us, e- even within the range of mentally healthy, you know, without illness per se, that's sort of with the zone we've been in today. We all have many of us have unhealthy relationships. Mm-hmm. Let's go to uh, Aaron. See what Aaron's got for us. Aaron, go ahead. Hey, Drew. Thanks for saving my life. You and uh, Adam on Loveline years ago. Um, when I when I was uh, about twelve years old. I believe I reached what you call in crack uh, the age of accountability. And I started to defend my attacker, who was an older male cousin who was molesting me. Uh. And by the age of tw- now that started at 8 through about 12. And then he, is, he and his boyfriend took turns, well, they injected me with heroin. And oh I don't know if I, that caused an addiction. How old were you? But I thought I was about 12, but they put a pillowcase over my head and took turns raping and photographing me, and I forgot about this because I started self-medicating right away. And I quit in 2002, and I've been clean and sober ever since. Uh, let and me just say, Aaron, Aaron, dude, congratulations. You, yeah. you, you have been dealt a hand that uh, it's phenomenal that you're sober. God bless you. Thank you. I, I appreciate your help on that, by the way. And uh, I, I pretty much remembered... The abuse, the the indoctrination period, the the sexual abuse period, but I didn't remember the rapes until I quit drinking, mm. and and then I went and got psych psych help, and I've been in on and off antidepressants and in talk therapy. I've used EMDR, but I've never ever ever had a girlfriend, mm. and I just don't. I'm not gay. They didn't change me, but I, I just. Don't know what's going on. I don't know how to fix. Well, that. Y- you have called on the right day because, uh, <laughs> really, because this is exactly the stuff we've been talking about: is how do you feel safe in close proximity to another person, particularly mm. a person whom you're likely to be sexual with, when you've had shattering pain? Very scared. Fear oh, and yeah. terror. Terror is the experience of I these think, kids. I think so. I, yeah. I, I think, thought I was dying when the heroin took effect. My breathing got so shallow. I thought I was dying. You may have been. And, you may have been. And then, and then they gave me a second injection because I was able to fight them off. But Aaron, they, Aaron I can I ask you, Aaron? Have you been yeah. in a relationship where you have felt safe enough to talk about some of this trauma that you've been? I mean, through? like with a, not, not a therapist, but a, right. a person. Yeah, with oh. another person. A uh, couple, but mostly my therapist. Mostly your therapist. So you've you've found that you've been able to speak about it in therapy, but to to take it out and be able to turn to another human being and and let them know kind of what you're feeling, that terror that comes up when you start to get close. It hasn't Well felt- I asked that I asked that question and I, I wanted to talk more about it, but my therapist warned me that you don't want to bring this stuff up in the first few months of a relationship, you know. First few months. And, 
you know, meaning, maybe, maybe meaning you're fearful you're going to uh, scare someone scare off. Them away. Scare them yeah. away. Yeah. How about how about we have like a three date rule? <laughs> maybe you don't bring them up the first three dates, but after that, I think that's better. Yeah, that's, after I that, think that's better. Yeah, three <laughs> after dates. that, because if I was holding on to that, you know, you help me. But if I was holding on to that and trying to hide that all the time, I wouldn't be able to dance with somebody at all. I'd be, sure. you know, right. I'd be ducking and weaving, and and so um, I, I understand what your therapist is saying, but you know, this is um, a core part of you that you sound like you've dealt with so brilliantly, you know, with so much courage. Um, I mean, you. you you need somebody who that you can tell this to who isn't going to run away. And, I mean, it's almost like there's a test for them, if you like, that, you know, you you, you tell yeah. somebody what's in your heart and then you see what happens, right? And the if person... Right, yeah, right. Yeah, the person that you want to continue to connect with is the person that says, "Oh my God, you know, I'm I, I I reaches for you." To, could I have been addicted to heroin at twelve? Was that possible over one dose? Did you use it for a long time afterwards? No, 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 no. I was I was an alcohol guy and a pot guy. No, I mean, adolescent opiate addiction is somewhat different, believe it or not. The adolescents get on and off it re- very easily without becoming dependent. And so, okay. yeah, they, like I, it's the only time you ever see heroin withdrawal where they, they, they stop heroin. They go, I can stop if I want to. And they can't. They just don't have withdrawal until 18 when the withdrawal starts. That's really kicking. interesting. I it's, didn't know that. The adolescent brain is different. It's weird. Um, did you, did you but, ever uh, finish your book, Dr. Drew? You talked about years ago, you talked about, you said you wanted to find out that golden – uh, rule or that how people get off of addiction. Have you ever started that book yet? I remember you talking about it years ago. Saying, I don't remember talking about it. <laughs> but you, I, you said something about how how people do it. How do they actually? Get oh, no, 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 no. What I wanted to write about, and I do write about it. I am writing that book. Yes, thank you. I, um, and th- this material we're discussing today is actually quite relevant to that book. Uh, what I wanted to write a book about, Aaron, was how people get to willingness. Because okay. how do they get to moments of change? How do they become willing to change? Because I can put through treatment people through years of treatment, yeah. and they're just yeah. not willing. But they, they will have these moments of clarity or moments of willingness. And, yes, I do get into that in this book, new book probably coming out in the summer or the fall. And I awesome. believe, I believe, and just so you know, it happens because of interpersonal experiences. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. the way to think of it is seeing things through a new pair of glasses. You see you, you see. Go ahead. The didactic exchange between yep. two brains. Yep, that's it. I get into that in great detail. But I want to stay with you because you, you're—I I really appreciate you calling, and I want to see if we can actually help Aaron today. I think yeah. we actually can. I mean, this is this is—you've got the—you've got the—you uh, know—the the New England Patriots here. You got the the right team. Uh, <laughs> or who's ever going to win this year? Yeah, Packers. Who, who, who Packers. we pulling for this year? Go Packers! <laughs> oh, he's from Wisconsin. Yeah, I'm Wisconsin. That, that was—he put that there. Yeah. See what I'm saying? <laughs> um, all right, so what we're saying is that you need to form a real attachment with another person and that you want to. He wants to do so. Yes. He's longing for that. And he, he deserves that, right? right. Yep. And you have to kind of know that going in, Aaron. You have to understand that you, you, you should do it and you deserve it. And there is somebody that will be with you in spite of these things that make you feel such deep shame. And uh, you, you, do you still feel low self-esteem and those sorts of things? Oh, come, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that, that's, I think, what he's going to be fighting. Right. Don't you guys agree that somebody, yeah. that someone would care about him, but, that he's worthy of the care? Yeah, but right. you know, the thing is, um, my experience of people uh, is that the bottom line is when we have the courage to really show who we are, 
um, that people are touched by that, and a percentage of people are pulled towards you, and that's the kind of people that you want to connect with anyway. So I can only imagine how much courage it would be for you to show that part of yourself. Okay, it, but it was hard because my dad was also um, verbally abusive to me, and I said I always thought that was the self-esteem issue. Right. Right. Now, being through trauma makes you feel shame. It just does. Okay. It, it just it makes you feel not worthwhile and wounded and broken, all kinds of those things. But here, I think, the, how should he approach it? Let, let's just give him this to go away with. How should he approach it when he brings these things up with a potential partner that in, increases the probability that she will hear and then embrace what he's what he's exposing? Well, I think the very best thing would be for him to begin with asking himself, how safe do I feel with this person? Because there are some people who can't handle it. Of course. Okay? Of course. And I think it's important to frame it that some people can't handle it, not that, you know, he went, he went through something that was so foreign to human experience. It isn't. We've all got some form of pain that we don't want to show other people, right? So s- some people won't be able to handle it. So you have to accept that, right? And, but, you know, to recognize that Maybe there are people, that, some people that you begin to feel some sense of safety with. And then if I was you, I would start to take small risks saying there's things that happen have happened to me that I'm, it's really quite scary to tell people about. And I guess I'm not sure if you're, you care enough about me that you want to hear some of these things. And, so and so when they leave... If, if they leave or they aren't attracted to me, that, that kills me. Well, that's see, that, right. that's what Sue is preparing you for, though. Some people okay. can't handle okay. this. That's not about okay. you. That's about them. It's okay. a, that's right. It, right. And, and you have to be prepared for that and have enough of a support behind you, friends, therapists, that kind of thing, that you can tolerate. They're not fun. It's not fun. But if you don't put yourself out there for those risks, ain't nothing going to happen. Right. Erin, do you have do you have a sense of what Sue means when she's speaking about how safe it would feel for you to even do that? Do you have a sense like I, are you able I, to check that out? Do you know what that I, would even actually, look like? I feel I felt when she said the word I felt like I could. Good. Like I can, like I have. And and the other thing I would do, Good. because I just kinda know how people are out there, is I would start it with just the way Sue did, like there's some stuff that makes me I need to feel safe, I'm checking in with you. But to say, you know, you're not, I don't, I'm not going to overwhelm you with this because I've had lots of treatment and I feel pretty good about it. It's, it's, not, it's not consuming my life right now. But, I, but it is a part of me and I do need you to, to understand this, this experience, these experiences I had because I don't want to hide it from you. Right. Right. And I'll just tell them three doctors told me to say this. Right. <laughs> if you, if you, you, but you, you can kind of do that in the context of – and use humor, by the way. That's yes. a great, the great, the great thing to have. But yes. in the context of, I'm okay. I'm okay. It's not. I'm not going to sh- overwhelm you with this, and I'm not going to be. You know, it's not something you're going to be burdened with. But it it's is not a, something you have to fix. Right. Burden, okay. no burden or fix for you. But it is a part of me. In order for me to be fully open with you, I want to be able to share these things with you. Yeah. Got cool. it. Yep. All right, Aaron. Check back in with right. me. Let me know how it goes. All right. You back. Thanks, guys. All right. Well done. So, ladies, that brings us about to the end of our time here. Wasn't that fun? It was See? fun. Lisa it was, was very anxious fun. when we started this. Like, what's the structure? Where are we going? What are we going to do here? What's going to happen? I'm just wanting to, to make sure it goes well. Did, did we do it? Did it go well? Yes. It you happy? Ex- yes, I'm thrilled. I am, too. Uh, it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. And, Sue, I do appreciate you coming up here hey, for this. it was it incredible fun. Deep honor and a pleasure. And I hope people You're most learn. most welcome. I hope people learn from this. And I hope they – great thing about the podcast, they can listen over and over and over. This, this podcast was packed with info, particularly those first 40 minutes. 
And the scary thing is uh, we could have done another 40 on, a, on even a more heady level where we were trying to keep it, you know, understandable. But do go to Hold Me Tight and get it through com and uh, learn more about this. As I said uh, to Aaron, I am writing a book about all the mechanisms of closeness. That's sort of what I'm writing about. I'm trying to make the Fonagy Shore, all that stuff material, and your guys' material too – Digestible for people to understand hey, how to do it. That's a good idea. Yeah, because because it's there's no uh, it's why all the self help books don't work because they're telling you cognitive things to do as opposed to what you need to go out in the world and experience. That's right, right in your intersubjective, right. interpersonal that's lives. That's right. And uh, you just need to f- do what we've been talking about here today in order to feel happy, feel good, create meaning, regulate your emotions, self esteem. All that stuff comes with closeness. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. So listen to this podcast again. If you didn't get it first time around, <laughs> listen on through another time. So Dr. Lisa uh, Palmer Olson, thank you. Uh, again, EFT trainer and director of the Alliant Couple Family Couple and Family Clinic. And Dr. Sue Johnson, who developed Emotionally Focused Couples Therapy. And she also is at uh, the Alliant International University in San Diego and University of Auto in University of Auto in Canada. Hold me tight. Be sure to get that. Also, ICEEFT.com or holdmetight.com. And hopefully we'll have these guys back to take more of your calls sometime in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Remember, you can find all these podcasts at drdrew.com. The Dr. Drew Podcast, the This Life Podcast with Dr. Drew and Bob Forrest, and the Adam and Drew Podcast, which is available five days a week. Find them all on iTunes and rate us five stars. Subscribe and get it first. And if you're really happy, click on the Amazon banner at drdrew.com to help support the show. We'll thank you for it. If you join the email list via drdrew.com slash contact, we'll send you a weekly infusion newsletter with Dr. Drew's news. We're so grateful when you get in touch. We read all your emails and we'll bring you the subject matter you want to hear about. 